0: A few years ago, I came into possession of a series of video clips you can watch on my social media. They were filmed by a man that can be classified as a slave. These men go to sea for periods of time against their will, with false promises and basic human rights being stripped from them. A few years later, I began to read this amazing book about sharks Emperors of the Deep by William McKeever. Anyone that knows sharks, knows that it's hard to find good shark books, so I had to get this one. I came across one chapter that caught my eye. Human trafficking at sea. William went into detail about this trade. He interviewed members of human rights at sea organisations, and in the process of researching, he made one statement that sent shivers down my spine. No one knows the true scale of the issue. It's true. No one does. Some men are promised a good job fishing and volunteer. Some are kidnapped. Some are beaten within inches of their life, deprived of food and sleep. This is modern-day slavery. Men are sold, traded and tortured, all to fill the demand for labour on fishing vessels at sea. We often look to horrific conditions wildlife faces at the hands of humans, but to understand the scale of horrific things happening to wildlife, we must also understand how much happens to humans. Without us knowing or acting, how can we protect other species if we can't even protect our own? I catch up with William on this podcast to learn more about his experience looking into this trade, and so I have a better understanding of the true trauma being felt by the men who filmed videos I have in my possession. This could be one of the most important podcasts that I've ever recorded because this is an issue everybody needs to know about slavery at sea okay thank you so much for joining me on my podcast um I know you through reading your book. And I need to explain that this is actually a really special thing because I don't read. I have the worst attention span ever, and I'll just go watch the movie. So the fact that I read your whole book is a testament to how amazing the book is.
1: Well, thank you, Madison. That's wonderful to hear. And, um, you know, it was a a labor of love. And, you know, like you, you know, our passion is sharks. And when you have that, uh, you know, it just flows naturally. So uh, thank you for that comment.
0: So for anyone listening, it's called Emperors of the Deep and it's so hard to find a good shark book. So this is one I'd recommend that you go read because there was stuff in there that I learned. And, you know, I love these little moments where you talk about Peter Benchley as well and things that he said and did. That was really cool to read. I think um, I really love touching on his journey through writing Jaws and then becoming a shark advocate. I think that's one of the best examples in the shark world of conservation
1: yeah you know and and even uh, Frank Mundus, who was the infamous character in in the book uh, by Benchley's Jaws, uh, he spent a, had a career as you as you well know, where he was hunting sharks. and at the end of his life, he realized that he had made a huge mistake and he also sought to undo what what he had done. So I think people in the end begin to realize um, that just how valuable these animals are.
0: Yeah, which is which is really amazing. Um, And hopefully by the time it happens around the world, it's not going to be too late. So you've always had a passion for sharks. But what inspired you to write this book in particular?
1: Yeah. Well, Madison, it it goes back to when I stumbled on a shark tournament out in Montauk. And uh, I live in New York City and I go out to Eastern Long Island, enjoy the the, the beaches. I love always loved the ocean as a child. always went to the the beach, I think my first time, I was four years old, my father took me out uh, on his back, swam way out in the ocean. And uh, so I always loved the ocean. And when I stumbled on the shark tournament, I just was shocked at how these sharks were piled up on the docks of the marina. And uh, some of them were hanging from yard arms, blood dripping down, others were in the process of being dissected, and it was, to me, so disgusting, so horrifying that something was going on. These sharks hadn't done anything. They didn't deserve this kind of torture and, and, and murder. So right then and there, I just decided, this has got to stop. And uh, so I, it's a mission of mine to, to put an end to these shark tournaments, and it's a hard road. Now, we know throughout history that whenever we come across cruelty to animals, um, uh, hunting uh, for fun, that uh, it does take a long time to change perspectives that was true with fox hunting it t- took decades so i'm i'm prepared for the long haul and so as i was have been working on ending those shark tournaments it led me down the road of learning about sharks i talked to scientists and i started to think well wait a minute may- maybe these guys are right that uh, you know sharks are man-eaters we don't feed them in the ocean and when I did this research and kept learning and I just was blown away at how valuable sharks are to the ocean and that just kept me going. And so I ended up uh, writing the book um, over time and uh, it, it, it I just came away with this incredible respect uh, for sharks and, and what they do for us because they're keeping the ocean safe and healthy and yeah. without the oceans, we're dead. So. Uh, so all that came together in the book.
0: You know, I uh, I did a little bit of work on the, the same tournaments that you speak of. Um, and I went to one in New Jersey and and tested some mercury from the sharks they were catching because they're always claiming that it's sustainable because they're eating them. And compared to the hundreds of dead sharks that I witnessed being finned in Indonesia, that was way more graphic and difficult to deal with going to a U.S. shark fishing tournament because the people involved were a different breed of people and it's not for survival it's completely purely for fun you know and half the competitors are drunk most of the time it's probably one of the biggest disconnects to nature that I've ever witnessed so it's I can see why that would have really kind of set you off on this journey and I did I did another podcast with uh, Paul DeGelder a shark attack survivor from australia and he put it perfectly he said shark fishing isn't a sport because in a sport you have two people competing against each other but in this the sharks don't know what's happening it's just a slaughter and i thought that was such an excellent way to put it and that is the reality of these competitions isn't it so it's uh it's at least it you you went on an amazing journey that's now helped sharks from witnessing that
1: yeah, that that really did uh, touch a nerve in, inside of me in those tournaments. And, and just a quick update in uh, New York State, there is a law uh, that uh, might be passing It's uh, to ban wildlife uh, trophy hunting. Um, there's a lot of that that goes on in New York State. They kill coyotes, uh, turkeys, uh, you name it, and it's just brutal. And I called them up and I said, I want to add sharks to this list. Let me show you the travesty that, that takes place. And uh, you know they, they came back to me and they said, we know it goes on, but these people that are in the tournaments say, this is our culture, this is, this is what we do, you can't come down and tell us uh, what to do. And uh, so the assembly person said, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to, to add sharks. Now, believe me, I'm not stopping. I'm going to find somebody else in the New York legislature to get a bill out there that, that puts sharks in a, in a ban of wildlife hunting. But the this idea that people have is our culture is utter nonsense. Um, no one has complete freedom to do whatever they want. No one has complete free speech. You can't stand up in a movie theater and yell fire, you'd be arrested. And the same thing <laughs> comes into the ocean. Um, you can't harm me by going into the ocean and, and uh, massacring sharks. That's a, that's a, a third-party impact so that you can't just say, well, it's my culture. So um, this is all going to come out over time. I'm convinced these tournaments will stop someday. And it's just raising people's consciousness, continuing to get the word out there and educating people. And particularly as, as we get another generation coming on that has that consciousness, we'll realize that argument of it's my culture just doesn't work.
0: And for anyone listening, we'll definitely be posting ways that you can help if there's a way that the public can help in the future to get sharks on that list, because that sounds like something that really needs to happen for them.
1: Yeah, it does. And uh, so I'm you know, working uh, behind the scenes to find a, uh, as I said, a, a person who can understand what's going on in the environment. You know, I think this, there's so much we've learned about the oceans and the interconnection of life. And the role that sharks play, and how important they are, that there are a lot of people that just are ignorant. And I'm not, I'm not denigrating them. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm just saying they're ignorant. They don't understand these issues. Mm-hmm. And so it does take time to educate people. And and uh, you've been so fabulous in in doing that and raising awareness. And my hat goes off to you. And and I'm, you know, we're we're in the same boat. No pun intended. Uh, you know, to to get out there and and raise the awareness and and the importance of of sharks.
0: Absolutely. Um, And in doing so, I think you and I have both made this realization that it's not just about sharks. It's also about people. And that's certainly the foundation for what I do in Indonesia. And I didn't always look at it that way. But the one part of your book that really struck a chord with me was the section about slavery at sea. Researching that must have been really eye-opening for you.
1: Yes, it was. And, uh, you know, I, I think you touched on a very important point about uh, having compassion. Uh, you know, when I learned that 100 million sharks are killed every year, and most of it is in the tuna fishing trade, as you know, where they, they mm-hmm. catch tunas, but they also like to catch the sharks and fin them and sell them to the Chinese for shark fin soup, I was really angry. At, uh, at the fishermen, and I just thought, how could they be doing this thing? And then I, I started to do some research, and I actually went to Cambodia to see the boats in action and and to interview some of these people. And I came away from that experience with a totally different perspective. I was shocked. At uh, actually, I feel very sorry for the the crews of these ships that are out there. Even though they're they're finning sharks, uh, it's it's a uh, it's an environment where the the cruelty, the uh, brutality of humans is um, bri- uh, un- uh, remarkable that it can go on in the in this modern era. so just mm-hmm. just very quickly, it's just a as a background, these Asian fishing fleets are are out primarily hunting tuna, and uh, trying to make money uh, doing this is very difficult. In fact, most governments will subsidize these uh, fishing fleets by paying for their, their fuel. And of course, when you have a crew on board, it's a uh, lot easier if you don't pay them anything. And uh, so these people uh, sometimes are tricked into working on these boats. A lot of times they're sometimes just um, shanghaied and, and put on these boats. And, and they, they realize that uh, they give them a little something uh, for spending a couple of years at sea and um, and that's the, the, the spending the sharks and being able to sell the fence. So it's all interconnected, of course. But the uh, but the shock that I had is that uh, these poor people from uh, Asian countries, they they don't have good opportunities for jobs. They're desperate for work. And uh, and I think that that's, again, this whole interconnection between between people, sharks, governments, companies that. Uh, We just need to also have compassion, just as much compassion for these fishermen who are held as slaves as we do for the sharks and the animals in the ocean. A
0: hundred percent. And then when we talk about slavery, it's it's quite crazy because I've posted about this on Instagram before and people are so confused, but we're talking about legitimate slavery. You had a section in your book speaking about a man that was kidnapped at age 17 from a local shop, drugged, and when he woke up, he was on a boat at sea where he was repetitively beaten and this is like full-on legitimate kidnapping and slavery and then while researching the book you spoke to a former officer and lawyer in the british royal marine commandos and he said that there have been open cases in several countries and that it's significantly unreported on a global scale so this is actually happening way more than we realize and there's very little awareness around it if i'm not mistaken
1: yeah, that's right, Madison. And I think that's great that you're helping to raise awareness to this issue. You know, when I was in, uh, in Cambodia, as I mentioned, I, I interviewed some of these men. Um, I, there was a nonprofit there. They want to remain anonymous for, uh, for, uh, obvious reasons. And so I, I met, uh, probably about a dozen, uh, of these men, they would show me, um, scars on their bodies. Um, The captains uh, have absolute uh, control. They can do whatever they want to the crew. Uh, There were some men who had been hit over the head. I I could see the the marks on their heads. The the poor uh, gentleman said that uh, he had trouble walking around during the day because of the sunlight. He obviously had some damage to his his brain. Another man had uh, a huge scar in his leg where he had been stabbed uh, by the captain and I said why did you do that he said i you know i wasn't working fast enough My and goodness. i started to ask but you know the crew what were the hours like they they said when when the nets are set out there or the long line is set out there and they're pulling them in they can sometimes be working uh 24 36 hours straight no sleep and uh, what what happens is that the uh, the captains will go around and they'll give literally pills to the crew to keep them awake, the stimulants. And if, wow. believe me, if, if, if you don't take it, you're, you're risking your life. And so they they keep them uh, up for that 36 hours, uh, uh, unbelievable conditions. And of course, when you're exhausted, um, accidents can happen. I, I know one story where man was working on the long line machine. This is where they, they pull in the line. His hand got caught. Uh, in the machine, he lost uh, all of his fingers, and um, and then they they had no medical care on the boat, so he just had to had to suffer, and um, and these these kinds of conditions of that not enough sleep and the food, you know, they don't properly feed these people. What they do is the fish that they're catching, uh, they'll use that, and of course, what's left after they take the meat off are really just scraps that are inedible. So they're mal- uh, malfed and uh, awfully in a, in a situation <laughs> exhausted and the the amazing thing is is if you think about this for just a week how, how awful it would be but for these fishermen they can be kept on these boats for two to three years uh at a time now you may ask the question well how can that happen they've got to come in right and and the answer is that uh, there's an ingenious fishing system they have out there using reefers. So a, a boat will head out to sea, fully loaded through and, and uh, fuel. And then after a few months, out of fuel, uh, they'll rendezvous with a reefer ship who will pump uh, the, the fuel in, into the boat, take off their uh, fish and um, give them some whatever other supplies. And they just stay right out there. So So they're
0: never coming to shore. There's no chance to escape. And this is really interesting because listeners will remember that we've touched on this before in a podcast about the Galapagos and the Chinese fishing fleet there. And it was initially we spoke about it. We called it trans shipping. So the idea that boats can stay out for a really long amount of time is causing a lot of issues in like – uh, documenting what's legal and what's illegal, and also the crew on the boat. So train shipping is not only used to exploit animals, but also humans, and it's a huge issue on the high seas.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point, Madison. And uh, and it, it just allows uh, the over-exploitation of, of the ocean, of, of tuna species. You can just keep these boats out, literally thousands of these boats. And you know, the, the Chinese have, a, have the biggest distant water fleet in the world by far. Uh, you know, they say, well, they have 5,000 vessels and Greenpeace um, believes they have three times that, 15,000 vessels and uh, scouring the, the world's oceans um, and uh, exploiting. You can't take away resources from the ocean like this without having a major impact on the health of the ocean
0: course. Now, you went to Cambodia to research this stuff, but what country do you think has the most kind of slave trade on these fishing boats going on? Is it more common in one place than another?
1: I think, uh, Madison, that it is fairly common throughout uh, Southeast Asia. It mm. involves the, the poor countries because, again, young men are, are desperate for work and there will be brokers who will go around and say, I've got a job for you in, in fishing, or I've got a job for you in whatever it might be, say a hotel. So they are promised a, a
0: good job, but they're not told that they're about to be at sea for months at a time, right?
1: Absolutely. And and they'll actually have contracts signed with these individuals that will say, hey, I'm working for you. and 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 uh, And when they get on these boats, realize they've been absolutely tricked and they... Get off! Try to get off the boats. Um, they are usually apprehended, and, and the contract, is shown, as saying this, this person is, owes us actually money. Um, you know, they they're, they deduct from the you know money from the sale of the shark fins uh, for their stay, their food on the on the boat. So it it all becomes a pernicious uh, system. Where these these poor men just cannot, uh, you know, escape uh, the system.
0: So the men you interviewed did they escape? Were they let go? How did they get away from that?
1: Yeah, well, the um, for some men they were after the two or three years they were A, they were allowed to uh, to leave. Uh, I think that the, the uh, some men tried to escape. Um, the police will typically catch them, as I said, put them back on the boat. Um, where that, that in, that in itself, trying to escape, can put their their life in danger. And uh, and if and even if they do escape and they end up in another country, they don't have a passport. Uh, the government doesn't want that they're in, doesn't want them, um, but they're not quite sure how to how to handle them. So they kind of sit in this in this limbo. But I think that. Vast majority of them after they've been used for several years, and it and it varies. Sometimes they're uh, they're stuck in that job for two to three years. Sometimes it's longer. I, I heard one. I didn't get it verified, but it was 19 years. But I'm suspecting that most of them are several years. And at the end of it, they have nothing to show for it. Again, going back to that NGO that that was kind enough to introduce me some of these uh, individuals that. You know, when you're either it was two years or five years, you come back, you haven't made any money. It's demoralizing what you've gone through. You, you, you've literally been in, in, in one way raped of, of your of your life, of your of any self-respect and to then try to make it back into society. When you don't have any skills, you haven't built up any abilities and start from scratch and you're traumatized. This is PTSD writ large. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine anything worse than, than than this. Going to war is is right <laughs> equivalent to it. So th- they they have a long recovery time after they they come back. So so anyway, just to to sum up, the the experience yeah. of these men is is really a life changer, and and they need help when they come back, finding a job, getting their lives back, and and the years that are lost can never be given back to them.
0: I mean, the things that you describe are, in the book are, are so horrific. I mean, the conditions they work in, the machines everywhere running all the time in the middle of the night, they don't sleep. You said the boat deck travels up to 15 feet into the air in rough seas. The floor is slippery from all the fish paths and blood, so people get injuries. You even mentioned someone getting whipped by a stingray tail. Like, its we're talking about giant commercial fishing vessels, and that's not a place that you want to be for a week, let alone months. And I personally have witnessed things happening in Indonesia that um, and Taiwan that relate to this. And I was given some footage by a man that I'm convinced was a slave on these boats of the conditions that they were working in. And, I, like, it's kind of crazy because my friend was actually the one that, that got the footage and he was too scared to put it anywhere because it's so much mafia involved and police are corrupt and um looking at the footage is insane and there's one clip where he shows us that he just took it on his iphone you know that um a boat's on fire in the middle of the ocean and he kind of in his broken english explained that they lost 23 people on that boat fire that day And just nothing happened from that. No one was informed. I mean, it was obviously such a small care for life. And the fact that the shark fin trade and other trades and tuna is just worth so much money that we're willing to risk human life for it is a concept that people don't quite understand. So I think raising awareness about this is is really important. And one thing I want to ask, which I don't know the answer to this and I could be wrong, but is there a chance that when we buy seafood from our local stores in Australia or the U.S., that we're supporting this? Or are these commercial fishing boats more, I don't know, related to the countries which they're leaving from?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Madison. And I can answer this unequivocally that seafood consumers in the United States and Australia are contributing to what's happening on the high seas. And, of course, to be fair to the consumers, they just don't know what's going on. This is not going to be picked up in the media. And of course, the media l- likes to have nice stories, tugging on people's heartstrings. This is not one of those stories people want to hear. That there's slavery still in this world. It's a it's a dirty secret that doesn't want to that uh, media doesn't want to focus on. So, so I think most Americans, and and I'm sure the same true in Australia and England that um, they want this to stop and they, they don't want to contribute to it. And there are things that they can do. And I, as I'll just mention one very simple one. If you do want to buy canned tuna, uh, you may want to consider pole-caught tuna, which means that you have a fisherman uh, catching one tuna with one pole and there's no bycatch, there's no catching of, of sharks. So that's something you can do. You can also ask when you're in the, in the supermarket, uh, about the, the seafood. Where does it come from? Um, how was it caught? And if you can understand that it was caught sustainably uh, with a methodology that was uh, doesn't harm the ocean, you know, these longline fishing vessels and that way of fishing is terrible to the oceans. It catches all kinds of seabirds and turtles. And so if you learn about these things, then you can buy the right seafood. And I can tell you, Madison, that The information is out there. There's laws that have been passed in the United States. The suppliers have to know where their seafood comes from, how it was caught, where it's coming from. And so that information is out there. And when people start to ask and demand that they have to have this information, that's when we'll get this out there. And uh, so I I believe it's just a question of, of educating people, bringing this to the fore, shining a light on this thing. And uh, the world can wake up to it.
0: It's really, really, really like amazing when you get to a point in conservation where you know you've been fighting for sharks for so long, and then you start to realize just how serious the issue is because humans are also at risk. And something you said that I really respect is: if you have no respect for human life, how can you respect sharks? And this is so true. I mean, we're, we're constantly fighting for animals but if we can't even get people to respect other people it's such a huge fight and now shark fins do play a role in this specifically don't they because men can use them to improve their income on these vessels
1: yes that that's right and uh, of course the, uh, the the reality is in the um, in the international fishing uh, area that uh, these people work on these boats don't get uh, a, a wage that they could they can live off of. They're they're desperate for money, um, and uh, many cases they're not not paid at all. One man that I interviewed in getting back to uh, Cambodia was on the boat for almost two years, and he said, went up to the captain. He said, "I'd like to have my pay," and uh, the captain told him flat out to his face, "Well, we have to to figure that out uh, for you." So they finally went back to, uh, the dock. Uh, two plus years later, he's let go. He was never paid, never got anything. And, and I, and I, you know, I could see the anger of, of, of this guy and, and, um, he had, and then he told me another story, which was, you think one, that's not bad enough. He had, uh, two sons, they, and, um, they ended up being on, on fishing boats as well. And the one son, he's lost complete track. He's trying to reach out to him. It's been over a year. And uh, his son could very well have been killed either by an accident or, or by, the, by the captain. You know, you, you talked, Madison, earlier about how, you know, you've seen some horrific videos. And, and uh, there was one that made it on, on YouTube. Uh, it was someone's cell phone. Someone picked it up, just went through it. It was left behind by someone. And they were amazed that it was a video of fishermen, or assuming they were fishermen, floating at sea, and uh, they were being shot at. And, and, and it was just too graphic. I mean, it, it, these people were, were shot. You saw the blood in the water. I'll just stop there. You get how horrific it was. So the, um, the, the treatment, the, the murders, the, the fact that they're not paid, uh, makes these men absolutely desperate. So when there's a shark, it's pulled up to the boat, and they can hack off the fins and make money off of that. Out of sheer desperation, um, they're going to do it. And of course, you add to the fact that they really have no choice. If you you say no to the captain, uh, you can be shot on the spot. That uh, it creates an environment where the sharks are caught up in this maelstrom of uh, of, of human uh, maltreatment and uh, utter disrespect for human dignity and welfare. And it's something that a world at this stage where we're trading things globally, we're all looking, I shouldn't say all, but many countries are thinking about democracy and fairness and equality and being woke and all those things are, are fine. But But we can't let other people be outside of the circle because we just don't wanna think about it or we don't wanna see it or no one's there to talk about it. We've gotta pull back the curtain all aspects of society even the poorest of the world and to show their situation so that they can get the help they need
0: a hundred percent and something i've learned through uh, my friendship and relationships with the fishermen in indonesia is that the smaller fishing communities are essentially a massive target they get offers all the time to do illegal things for the amount of money that you know is is pretty decent money to us but to them it's like a lifetime of payment and they get offers to traffic and they get offers to to illegally fish things and it happens so much so it's it's quite easy to see how how simply someone can be kidnapped or be offered a good job and then end up in this situation and it's kind of crazy it's it's to think about and the fact that we have so little knowledge about it, I mean, I didn't even know about it until recently. I think that's the biggest thing is that it does happen. You know, what, what's out of sight is out of mind, which is so true to things happening on the high seas. And, you know, its I fully respect the wanting to stay anonymous, but, but how can the average person kind of help this situation? I would honestly encourage everyone to read your book, not only because it's such a brilliant insight into sharks, but you describe it. So well in this chapter but how can the average person help with these sorts of things other than refraining from buying commercially caught seafood
1: yeah I, I think that uh, what people can do is again think about the seafood that they're buying um, you know if you if you buy if you're an American consumer um, if you like seafood you know consider trout um, that's farm-raised on land, which is a lot safer than farm-raised in, in the ocean. So that's, that's a good option. You can uh, think about wild-caught uh, fish in, in areas that are governed under U.S. law. Now, we're we, not perfect in this country, but we do a reasonably good job. And places like uh, Alaska have rules and regulations, so wild-caught uh, salmon uh, can be a very good option. It's not involving uh, slave labor. And uh, so that's number one. Number two is I think to get involved and it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to rush out and, and um, go to these countries, but if you join uh, the NGOs that are working on, on this issue, uh, Greenpeace, for example, has actually written reports about this. Uh, go to their website and, and uh, search slavery at sea. It's pretty graphic what's there and uh, join uh, an organization like that. And there are other companies that are or other NGOs that are working in this area as well. And when you join them and and contribute to them, uh, when they come out with petitions and you sign those, and when they can take a petition to a government and there are literally hundreds of thousands of signatures, that's when things get done. Because politicians have really a very important job that's get reelected and if you can help them keep their job that's important so when they realize that people are angry they want to see change and there are enough people doing it that's when they're going to do something so be involved politically um get involved in the ngos um help them i mean it, it doesn't take much uh, everybody would contribute five ten bucks uh, and, uh, it's a cumulative impact that they can really start to, to, to move the needle. And, uh, I think all of these things, and then also just, you know, saying to your friends that, you know, it doesn't have to be a situation where you're sitting down at dinner and then tell every give them an hour lecture. It's just, I know, like constantly. doing that though.
0: I'm a big fan yeah. of the hour lectures at dinners and it, yeah. it, I'll take my chance to, uh, get on my soapbox any day and just go on rant. So I'd encourage that one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and that's uh, that, that's nothing wrong with that. So, uh, but I you know, but I think about you know just if conversations come up about oh well, yeah, what do you like to eat? Oh, you know, someone might say oh I like seafood. Say you know, well, yeah, you know I I do polka tuna because blah blah blah, and you know and, and then go into you know an explanation. Someone and then you bring up the slavery, and someone will say well I didn't know that, you know. So then they get that information, they tell somebody else. So it begins to. multiply it so it's good to talk about it and and uh, so those are things that that you can do that um, again it's the numbers we've got to build uh, the following and that's why the work that you do Madison is so great because you have got the ability to draw people into this cause and so people who are already fans of Madison out there like me call (laughs) your friends get more people involved and tell, you know, to, to, to follow what you're doing because you're getting the word out there. And, and, uh, and I'm, uh, was happy that I, uh, uh, wrote the book to do something to do my part for it. And, and, uh, it helps to get that book out there. And so I'm going to schools and, uh, getting, giving lectures to student bodies and telling them to get their friends. So why not? So you, you see the, the, the point that, You know, we've got to just keep growing the following. Get the word out.
0: Absolutely. And in addition to our consumption of seafood, I'd encourage people to look in all other directions of where that fish might end up. Because when I did a quick Google search of slavery at sea, one thing I I read was that one of the companies that was found responsible for it is responsible for uh, selling seafood to a lot of the top USA brands of pet food which is something that I uh, actually had a bit of involvement in when filming Shark Water Extinction. We found mako shark in pet food that we had bought in the USA. So it's not just the fish you consume, it's the products that sharks are in. And it's crazy if you think about this. We're sitting here talking about men being drugged, murdered and kidnapped and used in slavery. And then we literally could be feeding the catch coming from boats all the way in Taiwan, Thailand, Cambodia, shipped to the US and put into pet food. The way that it works is so beyond comprehension. And the idea that we actually need to be so careful of what we consume is such an important one. And I can imagine for you going there and actually sitting down face to face with these men and being in Cambodia and being in that environment must have been such an emotional thing to do.
1: Yeah, it, it really was, and I'll, I'll never, this, will, this is a lifetime uh, memory that I have, and, and uh, I, I really, my emotions went from anger to, as I walked around the camp that they live in, and, and uh, these are incredibly poor villages uh, that make, in Cambodia, I think the average wage per day is something like two or three dollars. Um, my heart just just went out went out to these these men and uh there I, I still remember their faces um the anger when when they spoke to me about this and then i thought about well this is i'm just in cambodia what about laos and burma and vietnam where the same thing is going on there um it's a it's a pernicious problem that it's widespread and And it's something that uh, we need this talks like this helps to get the spotlight on it.
0: I think this will definitely be one of the most important podcasts I've ever recorded because it's something that people don't often associate with sharks or tuna. And it's something people don't know enough about is that this is actually happening. So hopefully everyone listening, you know, not only becomes a bit more aware of the issue, but also just how close it is to home. I mean, You talk about these countries and you're like, okay, this doesn't affect me. But seriously, keep in mind that the fish that they are producing on a massive scale is getting shipped to places like the USA and put in pet food. This is absolutely our issue as much as it is theirs. But on a slightly lighter note, in the creation of your book, I read a few chances that you had to actually get in the water with sharks. How is that?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I have to confess, Madison, that uh, I saw Jaws and uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> that movie I, should be banned, I see where this is way. going. No, it's
0: the best <laughs> movie ever. But yes, I, I it's a good movie because it, it keeps people out of the water. Yeah.
1: yeah. We yeah. want that.
0: We want less people in the water.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I had a lot of trepidation. And um, then I my first I just went full blast and went to South Africa, did a dive um, with, a, with an operator there. I was in the cage and a great white came by and I was just absolutely thrilled and I was so excited having the honor of being in front of one of the world's great apex predators. I just, I just got over the fear. And then I also started to notice that he wasn't interested in me. He was interested in the tuna they were throwing him to get him over to the boat. Uh, he really wasn't interested in me at all. So that was kind of like my first inkling. And then I just kept diving. And um, I, uh, to make a long story short, I ended up going to a dive, a Florida shark diving off the Jupiter Inlet. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a wonderful experience. They take you out uh, three miles out to sea and they throw the tuna, the sharks come and you're floating at the top of the surface and just watching them and that, you know, they're so used to the people by now. It's like, Oh, you know, big deal. We want the, the sharks are saying, we want the tuna, forget the people.
0: It's it's really damaging to the ego when you swim with sharks for the first time, I have to admit, because you've been taught your whole life that they want to eat you. And then when they have no interest in you, you're a bit offended. I'm not going to lie. Such an ego boot, like an ego hit when you are, when, when you realize sharks don't want to eat you.
1: Yeah. That's so funny. You say that because, I felt, the, I felt rather in, insignificant because I thought yeah. the shark couldn't care less about me. In fact, it, it wants to leave. I, that Florida uh, shark dive I had, there were, there were three bull sharks that came towards me. And I'm, again, floating on the surface, no cage. And they didn't want to hit me, so they, they swam down about 15 feet. And they just kept swimming, and then they swam away. I mean, it was uh, totally ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and of course I had, a, I, that's one of the great thrills of my life to have three bull sharks swimming abreast, uh, looking down right, right. Almost at my feet. Um, it was, uh, it was a thrill. So I actually, I, one of the things that I'm uh, promoting is shark ecotourism. Uh, there are a lot of places you can go to in the United States. We need more of them. Uh, I mentioned shark diving. There's another one in Montauk, New York, the good people there. Uh, that that have a shark dive operation. There's another one in, in Rhode Island. The, once you have that experience, you're so more, so much more connected to the ocean and to sharks and and the whole environment. That's what people should be doing, and not wasting their time at a silly shark tournament.
0: And uh it, it really is one of those things that, because I've been out with Florida shark diving a couple times, it is one of those things that anyone could do. Like I, I could take my grandma to do that. You know, there's no way in the world that she would. But if she was willing to, I could. Like it's a nice easy way to get in the water. You don't have to be a champion freediver or anything. It's it's the best way to just get up close and, and see
1: sharks. Yeah, it's it's so funny the uh when I went out there, I they, they did have a cage that they can put together and they said, It's up to you. I want the cage, fine. And then the first few when we 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 uh threw out the anchor and the first few people went out and some of the people who were a little nervous uh, wanted to see what would happen. And those first dive swimmers were, were fine. They said, oh, I don't need a cage. So they never use that cage. It's there. <laughs> but mm-hmm. once people get used to it, realize how, how safe it is. They've been doing this, I think for 10 years, they've never had an incident. Um, so it's really, uh, just, I, I, I can't, I, that's the one thing I get on my soapbox when I, when I'm out in Long Island, I tell people, you gotta go shark diving. Let's go. You know? And, uh,
0: and I, I, I say, nuts.
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yep. Story of my life. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and sharing all that information. And we're going to put some links or anything into the show notes of this podcast where people can help and find out more. But I really appreciate you coming on Talk to Me today and also writing your book. Guys, check it out. Emperors of the Deep. Hopefully he writes another one and comes to Indonesia and Chucks that in his book, so we're all waiting on number two. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you for that, uh, Madison. It was really great to be here and and so wonderful to talk with you. I could, I'm sure we could go on for hours with all about this because, you know, you, you, your passion is an infectious, and and I'm uh, and I'm crazy about sharks. So, uh the people out there. Could.
0: Yeah. We absolutely could talk for yeah. hours about sharks.
1: So I'm gonna <laughs> spare
0: everyone that though, and, and and hopefully people will keep listening to my podcast if I don't do that. So it's a challenge, but I'm trying.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you again so much, Madison. It's, it's been terrific. Thank you.